Welcome to the Monday edition of Couch Potato Diary, coming off of one of the craziest weekends we have had in sports. We are coming to you from the Clearwater Cleaning Solutions broadcast studio. Clearwater Cleaning Solutions has a competition running until January 31st. They need a name for their new mascot and they want your help. Follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn and help name their mascot by commenting on their post. The winning name will win a free residential cleaning. Check them out, clearwatercleaningsolutions.com. Check me out, Twitter and Instagram. I am at primetimecline, twitch.tv slash primetimepk. You can email the show, couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. And you can find the music for the show from Wasted Talent. There are X's in their name where the A's would be. So, holy shit, the NFL playoffs. Um, The first note I have here is just, wow. That Chiefs-Bills game, possibly the best game I've ever seen in any sport Ever. Just an incredible weekend in general. Every game coming down to the final possession. You have four walk-off wins with Cincinnati kicking a, a last-second field goal. Same thing goes for San Francisco. That one, not quite the dramatics because it would have gone to overtime, but whatever. You have whatever the fuck that was in the Rams-Bucks game and then this Chiefs-Bills game. I'm not going to go so far as to say this is the best divisional round that we've ever seen. I can't argue with that, but I don't don't have a Rolodex or a ranking system for, well, actually, back in 1998, the divisional round was tremendous. Like, I don't have a clue. Uh, But still, just an incredible weekend. And again, it gets capped off with, as cliche as this sounds, just a heavyweight championship tilt between the Kansas City Chiefs and the Buffalo Bills. So we're obviously starting today with the National Football League. Uh, Got some NHL and some fighting stuff at the end here. But, like, this, this game is literally the stuff of legends. Like, this is... They are going to be replaying clips of this on both sides when people from this game go into Canton. And whoever ends up winning the the Super Bowl out of this on that America's Game thing, they're going to play... even Even if it's San Francisco against Cincinnati and we're kicking it old school in the Super Bowl, they'll be playing... Well, these two teams played a heck of a game and then the Bengals beat them in the AFC Championship. Like, that's that's how this is all going to go. It, it was unbelievable. And as the Bills scored with 13 seconds left to make it 22 points in the final two minutes of that game, I was still thinking, oh, this isn't over. Not with how well Mahomes has been playing. And we're going to get into why a lot of what happened in this game happened, but I just had to start with this was amazing, and we need to make no mistake about it. These two are the standard bearers for the National Football League in terms of quarterback play now. Like, this is... Again, all due respect to the accomplishments in the past of guys like Rodgers and Brady and the potential of guys like Herbert and Burroughs and Lamar Jackson... These two showed why they are in the spot that they are. And it is unfortunate that the game ends in the way that it does because the overtime rules are getting a lot of the discussion. And that shouldn't be the case. This was an all-time great game. And it didn't even have a bad finish. It just had a relatively unsatisfying finish. And the, the overtime rules, again, getting a lot of buzz this morning. Just let both teams get the ball. Like, this this shouldn't be that difficult of a thing. If you want to do the mini games thing with the CFL rules and... Again, I don't want to be the anti-CFL guy here, but everyone else calls them the college football rules. But I, I, I digress. That's an unnecessary shot. I digress. I don't mind if you want to do the mini-games thing with the CFL rules or the college football rules or whatever. Or just let both teams have the ball. Like, the, the Kansas City goes down the field. They score first. Buffalo get a chance to match. Why is this so hard? 
you you don't if you want to try it around like if you start with the mini games at the thirty five yard line, you're never going to end it because every field goal kicker aside from dude for the Rams who came up short on a forty seven yarder, which was again kicking it old school, but. Any team has a field, most teams have a field goal kicker who can hit from 53 yards. So starting at the 35 doesn't make sense. If you want to start at the 45, fine. I'm just saying Kansas City gets a touchdown in the kickoff and odds are Bills start from the 25-yard line. Why is that so difficult that this isn't groundbreaking? And I understand football is a violent sport and you kind of want to play as little overtime as possible in the regular season. When it comes to the playoffs, these dudes are going to be, you're telling me that, and I get like, Injuries can happen. We saw it on Tyron Matthew early in this game. But you're telling me that Buffalo was going to feel a thousand times more sore today if they played an extra set of downs in overtime? No. No, that's just not... No. So this is just... It's classic overthinking something from the NFL. And it's it's such an easy fix that just needs to be fixed. But I need to be very clear about this. The Buffalo Bills did not lose this game because of overtime rules. They shined a spotlight on how awful the overtime rules are, but they did not lose because of them. A couple of things. One, they lost because the Kansas City Chiefs had a quarterback who was on God mode for the last, I mean, four years, really. But for the last half of that game, there was just no stopping him. And the Bills also had a guy who was on God mode as well, but... I think we do need to give a bit of credit on Kansas City's part for winning this game, but the Bills didn't make it as difficult on them as they needed to. I do think that the coaching was the main culprit in this game. For sure, stop anybody on defense, but I, I don't believe the Bills are put in the best position to succeed. We start early in the game. Buffalo, for the first time all season or all postseason, punts, and it was on fourth and relatively manageable. And hindsight being what it is. It's easy to say this now, but no one was stopping Josh Allen in that game. No one was able to tackle Josh Allen. So to not go for it in a fourth and short situation with Josh Allen. Also, it didn't matter if you were giving Mahomes the ball at the one. You weren't stopping him either. So I I just thought that that was a rare playing scared moment from a Buffalo Bills team that hadn't been playing scared that entire game. And they said even coming in, you do not beat this team kicking field goals and punting the ball away. You beat this team by being aggressive. That is how you beat Tom Brady and the Patriots back in the day, and that is now how you are going to have to attack Patrick Mahomes. And it was just one little hiccup for Buffalo, and I don't know if it ends up like really costing them in the game, but it was still a coaching decision that I thought needed to be highlighted in this situation. Then at the end of the game, the decision to not squib kick it is probably what cost Buffalo in this game. And I am not justifying it by any stretch, but I can at least understand why they did that. I think Tyreek Hill's punt return earlier in the game is what led to this decision. He burns them on a punt return in the fourth quarter, gets it down to around the 26-yard line of Kansas City. And if the Chiefs had taken care of business in that spot, and we'll get to that in a minute, I then the game is over. And I think that is where they got spooked a little bit. I, I think that they were a little bit concerned about some of the explosive plays that Kansas City would be able to provide on that side of the ball. But then, if that happens, that's taking six, seven, eight seconds off of the clock, and you're either banking on a Butker major field goal, or it, it's like a quick pass and a Hail Mary. Like, I, I just, I think that was playing a little bit too scared in that situation. And... 
Like that, again, right there, is what cost the Bills. For 59 minutes and 47 seconds, with a couple of exceptions as we talked about, this team played to win. And for the final 13 seconds of the game, they played to not lose. They played the prevent defense and they let the Chiefs' speed kill them. I understand, like, wanting to, to play off the ball. I get it. You don't want to get beat deep for, like, a Milt Stiegel 99-yard touchdown um, on those types of things. Like, you don't want Tyreek Hill just blaze of glory down the field making one dude miss and he's gone, like Cooper Cup did earlier in the day. Um, you, you don't want that to happen, but you also have to understand what Kansas City is looking for. Mahomes isn't going to, like, three-step drop, look at a couple of reads, and then go. These guys are like, quick, 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 quick. We need to get the ball out now. We have 13 seconds to move the ball 50 yards down the field. And so to back off everyone and not have an extra layer underneath to either make the pass a little bit more difficult or maybe slow Tyreek Hill down a little bit. It, it, first guy is very rarely getting Tyreek Hill, but at least slow him down uh, a certain degree. I just thought that was awful strategy. And then Romo pointing it out too on the broadcast, why are you rushing for? Mahomes is just grip it and rip it. Like that ball is getting out in two seconds. So unless an offensive lineman spontaneously combusts while Mahomes is tripping and falling, you're not getting to Mahomes. And I, I don't know if you noticed, you weren't exactly sacking the dude either. And if you give him time to scramble around and give Tyreek Hill and Travis Kelsey time to run down the field, then you are going to get burned by the big play that you so dreaded earlier in that game. So again, only rush two if you want. Be able to drop a couple more back into coverage. And again, just get on that inside throw from Mahomes to Kelsey on that last play that sets up the, the game winning field goal. I just, I feel like this was... The, it, this was a prime example of that cliche that the only thing the prevent defense does is prevent you from winning the game. And it was, it, it's a, a style that I think and a game plan that I think worked 25 years ago when all due respect to those guys, there isn't a Tyree Kill who was able to burn down the field and play calling isn't or wasn't the same then as it is now. You don't have as many wide receiver screens or anything like that. This was a situation where I think the Bills coaching staff did not put their players in the best situation to win a football game. On the other side, Kansas City wins this game. However, we should not let Andy Reid off of the hook. I do quickly want to mention, bravo to both teams for managing their timeouts extremely efficiently so that Kansas City had the timeouts remaining at the end of that game that was necessary to help set up the game-winning field goal. For Andy Reid, we just talked about that kick return for Tyree Kill. They get set up inside the 30 of the Buffalo Bills. It was, I think they had a two-point lead at that point, and this was the opportunity to just seal it done. Like, it was a chance to be over. And you have Patrick Mahomes. I think the most talented football player this sport has ever seen. And on three plays, you run it with Jarek McKinnon, who was out of the league until six hours ago. You run it again with Jarek McKinnon, who is still very much Jarek McKinnon. Good game, but maybe not who I'm resting my entire season on the line on. Um, and then you have your backup tight end come in to run an option toss to Jarek McKinnon. That's a cute play to run on second and four in the second quarter when you're up 10 or down 10 and you're just trying some shit. To run it in that situation on third down in the fourth quarter of a playoff game, that is close. Andy Reid 
is like four play calls away from being one of like on the Mount Rushmore for greatest coaches in the history of the NFL. But every time he has an opportunity to just get a little bit too cute with something, he gets a little bit too cute with something. And th- this is not Mike McCarthy with Aaron Rodgers where they're winning in spite of him. Andy Reid for 98% of every football game is one of the greatest coaches of all time. It's just a couple little blunders here and there where it's like, what the hell are you doing that ends up costing them? So now Kansas City is back hosting the AFC title game. On the Buffalo side, this felt like their best shot at it. 13 seconds away from being a heavy favorite at home in the AFC title game, and the quarterbacks on the other side are Matthew Stafford and Jimmy Garoppolo. How many more looks at this situation are you going to get? And how many more times are you going to have Mahomes that vulnerable? Probably not many. This is this is one that, like, you saw the, the digs shot a million times this week of him looking on and using that as motivation. There's only so much motivation you can take before it just starts beating you down. And you hope from a Bill standpoint that this doesn't beat them down, that this is just another step on the, the road to glory. But the Bills franchise knows sometimes that last step doesn't ever happen. They went to four straight Super Bowls. You'd think after a couple of those, okay, well, this is the year, and it ends up not happening for them. That this is one you hope doesn't just like, I'm not going to say cripple the franchise, but you hope this doesn't knock them back a bit. And the desire will probably be there to try to make some kind of big splash, but I, I don't know if you need to. Like this defense was pretty good most of the year. They just got thrashed by Patrick Mahomes, who was unstoppable in that game. You could upgrade the coach, but also you have a coaching staff who have developed um, Josh Allen, beyond the point that anyone thought he could ever be. I certainly don't think we've heard the last from this Bills team by any stretch of the imagination, but this is this is one that is going... Even if they go come out and win the Super Bowl next year, there's always going to be, yeah, could have been two, though. Like, that. that's always going to be in the back of their mind. At the end, or before uh, Chiefs-Bills, I was thinking, man, if we had like an hour or so to just take a bit of a breather. Like if they wanted to move Chiefs Bills to Monday just so I could get a breather, uh, that would be great because Rams Bucks was insanity. And it didn't seem like it was going to be. It was 23 to 3 at the half or 20 to 3 at the half for the, the the LA Rams. This game looked over. And the Rams had every edge in this game, and it still almost didn't matter. Everything we talked about during the week. The, the Rams' pass rush giving Tom Brady some issues. The holes in the Buccaneers' secondary that the Rams were able to exploit. They did all of it, and they did it perfectly. And still, there was Tom Brady in a tie game in the dying moments of this football game. A lot of this is Tom Brady coming up with some big plays down the stretch, but a lot of this, the Rams just falling apart. And again, another theme... A little bit too conservative. They get the ball after a Tampa Bay fumble. The, the Bucks have all this momentum. It's 27-13. You got Michaels and Collinsworth talking about how hilarious it is that it was 27-3 in this one after it was 28-3 in the other one. And how coincidental that would be. And how you can never count Tom Brady out. And then they get a fumble. And there's an opportunity to just, again, put this one dead and done. Um, I was watching this at a buddy's place. We were playing Madden by the time this was all going down because like the, the game felt over and this could have been like done to done done. Instead, you snap the ball like 30 yards downfield and allow Tampa Bay to get on that. Then Tampa Bay gets stuffed on downs. The Rams get it back. Two acres runs, a quick pass to Sony Michelle, 
and you give the ball back. 30 seconds taken off the clock. Now, Tampa Bay uses all of their timeouts, but still, 30 seconds taken off the clock, and all you did was run straight into the teeth of that defense a couple of times, and then a short pass where the Buccaneers are able to rally to the football and able to make a play. Tampa Bay gets a touchdown, you run up the middle, and then you fumble it, and now we have a game. Again, it is just being too conservative and being too too different from what made you successful. I'm not saying continue to push the ball down the field, but just a bit of variety in your game plan would be great. They still end up coming up with the win. And this is one I initially I thought about um, a potential, I, I don't want to say ripping of, but I, I thought about the, the looking at that play call at the end by Todd Bowles because Matthew Stafford does extremely well against the blitz and that blitz allowed the one or two receiver in the league to be wide open to set up a game-winning field goal. But I understand where Bowles was coming from. The Rams were clearly moving the ball on you. That, that was obvious. And they were probably going to get set up in a spot where a field goal was likely. Now, they had missed a 47-yard field goal short early in the game, so there was a chance that uh, potentially they could miss that field goal. But the Rams' best opportunity was try to knock Matthew Stafford back and knock them out of field goal range, and you probably weren't doing that rushing for. So they sold out, and it just didn't work. I mean, maybe try to have a play where uh, Cooper Cup isn't wide open, but still, I, I understand the desire to go for the blitz there. And I do think we need to give credit to Matthew Stafford, because all of that that we just talked about, about how the Rams fell apart, none of that is on Stafford. You could go a little meta on this and say, well, it's because they didn't trust Matthew Stafford with the ball late, but they trusted him a hell of a lot when he was covering up that secondary in the first half of that football game. This was the defining Matthew Stafford performance, and he is now two of those away from being a Super Bowl champion and completely rewriting the script on his career. It's not a script that a lot of people are super negative on anyway, but th this is an opportunity to make the resume look a little bit more like that of a quarterback who was drafted first overall. I thought he was tremendous all day on Sunday and uh, a great performance from him and a great performance from the Rams. They are playing the San Francisco 49ers and I still don't know how the 49ers ended up winning that football game. They come away with a 13-10 win on the last uh, last play of the game, uh, kick to win it 13-10. I think the most fascinating part of this game is where it leaves the rest of the National Football League. Because I think Aaron Rodgers is gone. And because of this now, we talked about the, the quarterback landscape earlier in the season, changes everything. There are limited spots that Aaron Rodgers wants to go to. He's probably not going to Pittsburgh. All due respect, he probably is. It's probably not just happening. It, it, it's just not happening. The Raiders would be an interesting one because then what do you do with Derek Carr? And then where does he go? And how does that bump things around? I think the one domino that really knocks a bunch down is what does Miami do? Because they, I think, would be very willing to move on from Tua if you were able to get one of those guys. Does Aaron Rodgers want the the sunshine and everything of Miami? That would be interesting. But just where does Aaron Rodgers now go? I think completely changes the dynamic of the rest of the league and makes an offseason that I thought was actually going to be pretty quiet quarterback-wise, aside from Russell Wilson being the big name. Now, all of a sudden, you have two big names, and I think a lot of potential shuffling going on after that point. And then, that's just the that, that's just the quarterback spot. What does Devontae Adams do? Because the Packers have, like, the second-worst salary cap situation in the National Football League next year. 
under what circumstances are they going to be able to keep Devontae Adams? And at that point, are they going to want to? Like, do, do you just kind of start over around Jordan Love? It'd be great to have Devontae Adams, who I still think is a top five receiver in this league. It'd be great to have him helping that quarterback along. But is Adams going to want to do that? And will you be able to afford to bring him in on a franchise tag? Like, this, this could be the first dip for the Packers since they got Brett Favre um, from the Atlanta Falcons. Like, this this could legitimately be the first real downtime for them. And then you get into, where does Devontae Adams go? Does he just follow Aaron Rodgers wherever A-Rod goes? Does he follow wherever Derek Carr goes as those two guys play together uh, at Fresno? I just, I feel like this loss really altered things for this NFL offseason. It turned the NFL offseason, which is always interesting anyway, but it turned it from being a, oh yeah, it's a pretty neat, it's a, it's a pretty interesting one, to a, all right, let's get this Super Bowl thing over with so we can see where all the chips fall. And we talk about teams needing quarterbacks. I would say the Tennessee Titans are amongst them. Uh, first off, congratulations on the Bengals. Had won a playoff game since 1991. Now they've got two, and they are a win away from going back to the Super Bowl for the first time in forever. So we got that out of the way. Great performance. Uh, Joe Burrow's fantastic. They should not be in this football game. Ryan Tannehill gave this game to the Bengals. I think there are a lot of times you can look at a few different things, and I think quarterbacks sometimes get too much blame. Not the case in this. Ryan Tannehill is the reason the Tennessee Titans are not hosting the Buffalo Bills in the AFC title, or sorry, the Kansas City Chiefs in the, the AFC title game. That's period. End of story. That That is why. Those interceptions at the worst times were so costly. He looked like the quarterback who was playing in the, the biggest stage of his career. Not not Joe Burrow. It looked like Ryan Tannehill was the young 25-year-old who had been hurt last season who's playing in his just second postseason game. That was awful. That that was like Tannehill's job with this team. And I get he was tasked with a little bit more as the season went along because of the injuries. Tannehill's job with this team is don't screw it up. You have enough weapons on the offensive side of the ball for that squad that if you just just get it to him safely and let them do their thing. That's all he had to do. And he screwed it up a bunch during the game, but they still had a chance of 20 seconds left to win that game, and he still screwed it up. I We've talked a lot on this show about team building, and I, I tweeted it out. He was so bad on Saturday afternoon, I am rethinking my entire outlook on how NFL teams should be constructed. Because I, I am of the belief, having an excellent quarterback, and we saw him Sunday night, Having that elite level quarterback masks a lot of issues. But you saw with the Buffalo Bills, sometimes even that's not enough. You need to have the rest of the team around these guys. And the Tennessee Titans have the rest of the team around Ryan Tannehill. Secondary could use some work. I will admit that. But that pass, not, they set a playoff record for sacks in a game. Um, we, we had Tennessee uh, as the prediction on this show. Anytime the Bengals dropped back to pass, I was like, oh, okay, good. They're going to get them. You, you felt so confident that they were going to at least disrupt the play on every play that Cincinnati never really got into their offense. And then on the offensive side of the ball for the Titans, you have the last great bell cow running back in Derrick Henry, who didn't have a great game, admittedly. But then you have some backups behind him who were having good games. And you have A.J. Brown, one of the most talented receivers in the league, and Julio Jones finally healthy when he is at that point one of the most talented players in the league. Everything was set up around the quarterback, and they still lost this game. 
from a Titan standpoint, I don't know where you go from here. You probably bring back everyone. Like that's probably going to be what happens. Um, Tannehill just signed a big contract. I, I didn't get a chance to look into it before we taped this, but I would imagine it's a little bit difficult to move that contract now. And I don't know who's wanting him. Obviously, like if there is a world where Aaron Rodgers is like, you know what, man, I just, I fucking love country music, dude. Let me go to Tennessee. Then the Titans are the Super Bowl favorites. Like if they get the quarterback situation upgraded a touch, then this is a team that moves into that upper echelon. But no one took them seriously as a one seed. I did, and their quarterback ended up biting me in the ass. So uh, again, thank you to Ryan Tannehill for having me rethink everything I believe in about the National Football League. The music that you hear on Couch Potato Diary is provided by Wasted Talent. Find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. And find their producer on Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. So, other sports happened while the NFL was absolutely dominating the, the landscape this weekend. In the NHL, we talked about the Flames-Oilers game on Saturday and how Calgary desperately needed to not let the Oilers off the mat. You have an Oilers team that has one of their top players getting into a weird discussion with a reporter. You have a reporter asking one of the Oilers' top players, why are you so pissy? Everything is falling down around them, crumbling at the seams. They're losing 6-0 to teams on back-to-back. -back. Like It is just absolute spiral mode for the Edmonton Oilers. You have a Flames team coming off of one of their better performances of the season, a 5-1 win over the Florida Panthers. All right, things are back on track, and pfft, that's an awful loss. And I get, like, the Oilers, again, have two very good players. A, McDavid was kind of quiet in that game, and you never want to lose a game when that's one of the sentences you say about Edmonton. If you lost two of the other guys in Edmonton, that's a big problem. But also... It's just, it's not a loss you can have. That team is struggling so much right now. These are the games that forever this Flames team was losing or not winning as convincingly as they needed to. And this is, again, that same old Flames team creeping up. And it looked different at the start of the year. It really did look different. You weren't relying so much on Gaudreau and Monaghan. That top line is still one of the best top lines in the league. And now you have a second line. Coleman hasn't really produced the way you thought he would, but that's even coming around. That second line is good. On the blue line, you had guys stepping up in big-time ways, and the goalies were red-hot at the, the first part of the season. It looked like it was going to be different, and in Daryl, we trusted from a Flames standpoint. Looks like the same Flames team to me. And this is, uh, again, we've talked about Brad Living and his job security with Calgary. This is a team that needs to make the playoffs this year, or else, like, you have Goudreau's contract is up, um, you have decisions to make with, Matthew Kachuk, like half the roster, you have decisions to make. And Calgary, as we sit here, and again, everything is all over the place right now, but points-wise, they're out of a playoff spot. Points percentage, they'd be in one, admittedly. But points-wise, this team is currently two points out of a wild card spot. They have a lot of ground to make up, but again, we talked about it this, uh, we, we talked about it before, a lot of that ground is going to be made up all at the same time. It is not going to be an easy stretch for the Flames after this little group uh, of games that they had leading up to what we thought was going to be the Olympic break. That needed to be a win for the Flames to get them back on track. Now you're facing a very good Blues team tonight, and we talked about games against Columbus coming up, games against the Canucks coming up, but now you kind of got to win some of these games that you were expected to lose to get back on track. 
I think this is going to be a Flames team that's going to be very aggressive at the trade deadline because the bottom six is just non-existent. Like, Monaghan is trying out there. Lucic and Dubé, I, I have high hopes for Dubé, but it's a bit too quiet on his front. And that fourth line is a black hole on a night-in, night-out basis. This team needs to rebuild that bottom six and quickly or else they're going to see the playoffs fade away from them. Uh, last one, UFC 270 went down from the Honda Center in Anaheim, California on Saturday night in the main event, Francis Ngannou with an amazing performance beating Cyril Gaon by unanimous decision and not the fight we thought we were going to get that one. I think it's really impressive that a fighter can go to plan B and have it be so successful. A, that a fighter would go to plan B at all because we see a lot of guys... And hear a lot of interviews where people are saying, well, look, I'm just going to do me. Like, that's, I, I can worry about my opponent, but I, if I just focus on what I can do, I think I can win this game. If Francis Ngannou just focused on what Francis Ngannou could do, Francis Ngannou would have got leg kicked to death. And we'd be sitting here talking about Cyril Gaon as the, the UFC's undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. Francis Ngannou, with a great adjustment, goes to the wrestling game, and it was successful. I, I said it on Saturday on the post-fight show on Twitch. Does this now mean Francis Ngannou can go into no-gi grappling tournaments? Is he going to go to Abu Dhabi and just clean up? No, of course not. Uh, th th that's not going to be his style. But now to know that that is there in the repertoire and that just, oh, just take him down. Well, that ain't happening. Two guys have tried that now. Hasn't worked. Francis Ngannou is becoming more well-rounded with every performance, and that's terrifying for the UFC's heavyweight division. I think it's so impressive what Francis Ngannou was able to do. And another part of this, we'll get into a, a little bit more of the X's and O's on the Friday show when we have a bit more room to talk fight stuff on that program, but I think you saw the reason why Francis Ngannou changed camps. And it seemed like the translation wasn't super-duper. On Saturday, So there might have been a little bit of technical analysis that was lost in translation, but it felt like there was a lot of, yeah, just avoid him, just move. Like there wasn't a whole lot of technical advice being given to Cyril gone in situations where with a little bit more technique, he might have been able to, to get away from that. Having a dude who's an extra 20 pounds heavier just holding you down is admittedly a bit of a difficult situation to just technique your way out of, especially in 2022. 1993, yeah, you just throw up an armbar, the dude's never seen it before. 2022, guys know what they're looking for a little bit more, but for, for Cyril Gone, I thought he was a fighter that needed a little bit more instruction, and he was one who needed a plan B when there clearly wasn't one. For, from his corner, where you looked at what Ngannou's corner was giving him, it was clear, concise advice. The, the corner had a unified game plan, and when they had to go from plan A to plan B, they were all unified in that as well. I thought this was a masterful job from Ngannou's corner on Saturday night. The main issue that's popped up coming out of this is fighter pay. Francis Ngannou, the heavyweight champion of the world, he was on The Daily Show. There were He, he was all over ESPN. He was everywhere. Um, in, in the build-up to this fight. He has my mom messaging me before um, before the show saying, I, I hope this guy wins. He is someone who has done what the UFC wants their heavyweight champions to do, and that is transcend the sport, go into the mainstream, and get eyeballs. Francis Ngannou, in this fight, made $600,000. The UFC upped their pay uh, that you had to make for uh, a pay-per-view, up the cost of a pay-per-view, Francis Ngannou doesn't see a lick of that. 
the entire UFC 270 card made $1.8 million. That's embarrassing. Um, Andreas Hale from uh, DAZN, he's done a, a number of great things. Like He's an absolute must-follow for all combat sports stuff. He tweeted out, the total combined payout for every fighter for UFC 270 was $1.8 million. Fury made $30 million in his third fight with Wilder. Wilder made $20 million. So Fury and Wilder made 25 times more than the entire UFC 270 card combined. It is so obvious that UFC fighter pay is a major issue. It came up a little bit in the prelims when one of the, the fighters said, oh yeah, I, I finally stopped um, professionally dancing, we'll call it, uh, to, to get ready for this fight. And look at that, look at the results. It turned out amazing. If you allow these fighters to just focus on fighting, look at that, better results come out. You have higher quality fights. The thought, and I'm not saying everyone needs to make a million dollars. The first person kicking off the show probably doesn't need $1.8 million. However, the fact that there are people fighting for the Ultimate Fighting Championship that just sold for billions of dollars, that makes it all back on a year-in, year-out basis, the fact that there are some of them who need second jobs while fighting on ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports, and traveling around the world and selling arenas around the world, the fact that some of them need to be strippers to make up for the, the revenue that they're not making being a UFC fighter is embarrassing. And the UFC is going to keep getting away with it because... The, the fighters aren't going to unionize and it's just how it has always been. It's just, it's, it's baffling. It really is. When we went over the numbers last week, UFC fighters make 16% of the, the revenues from the, the ultimate fighting championship when every other sport is basically a 50, 50 split. Not often are you going to hear me agree with Jake Paul, but he is someone who I appreciate that has been bringing up this, thing on a consistent basis and Francis Ngannou is now the standard bearer for that. Coming out of this fight, the, the question is what's next? And you can see now, as we lay all of that out, why Francis Ngannou is looking at the boxing route and looking at almost any other route that he can go to, to try to find a little bit of extra funding, shall we say. If he is not going the boxing route, I think it's very clear the next fight is John Jones. Um, Stipe Miocic hasn't fought since the, the Ngannou fight. The, this Cyril Gone fight was not close enough that I, I think you need an immediate rematch coming out of it. And there's no buzz around anyone else in the heavyweight division that's even close. I think the fight to make is John Jones against Francis Ngannou. If you can get John Jones to stay out of trouble for eight weeks, and again, I'm not saying he stayed out of trouble up to this point, but it's very, it seems a little clear that John Jones we don't really have a whole lot of runway left with this fellow, shall we say. So I think the UFC, it makes the most sense for them to bring him in as the challenger for the heavyweight title and have this big fight for Francis Ngannou. The unfortunate is probably that Francis Ngannou's next fight maybe doesn't come until 2023 and it maybe doesn't come in the UFC. And that's really too bad because it is, it is such a waste of an amazing talent and what could be an amazing partnership if the UFC could just get out of their way. And lastly, Brandon, Figure, uh, Brandon Moreno sorry, and Davison Figueredo with a tremendous fight on Saturday. Doesn't get enough attention because of all of the news around Ngannou, but Figueredo, the adjustments he made from fight two to fight three, and we'll get into again more of those coming up on the Friday show uh, when we get a little bit more technical with the fight things, but 
for Figueredo to see that there was a weakness in his game coming out of that second fight and improve upon that. You don't see a lot of former champions get their title belts back. That there isn't a lot of, okay, I need to do this, so I'm going to make an adjustment and have that work. I said going into this fight, I was concerned that the first two fights were about what Figueredo didn't do. The third fight's going to be about what he can't do. And he could do it. And it was a much more mature, much more measured approach from Figueredo. And he got the job done. I want to see the fourth fight right away. I love the idea of doing it in Mexico City. Um, that is a place that has been a little lenient at times with some of the COVID protocols. If you wanted to do that, I don't know if you want to do that in the summer in Mexico, although having guys um, cut weight in the summer in Mexico won't necessarily be that tough. You'll have heavyweights walking in 145 pounds. But if you wanted to do that in Mexico City, I have no problem with it. If Askar Askarov gets the next shot, I have no problem with that either. Bantamweight, at least getting a touch interesting now after a long time of uh, maybe not so much. That's going to do it for the show today. Once again, shout out Clearwater Cleaning Solutions. They have a competition running uh, between now and January 31st. They need a name for their new mascot and they want your help. Follow them on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn and help name their mascot by commenting on their post. The winning name will win a free residential cleaning. Thank you, everyone. Please remember, rate, review, subscribe wherever possible. You can find me on social media, Twitter and Instagram. I am at primetimecline, twitch.tv slash primetimepk. And you can email the show, couchpotatodiary at yahoo.com. The music that you hear provided by Wasted Talent. Find them on Instagram at Wasted Talent with X's where the A's would be. And find their producer on Instagram at Tommy Fresh Music. If you haven't heard enough from me, I am on the Sports Rundown podcast every week on the Fresh Take Network. We got two more podcasts coming out here this week. I am on twitch.tv slash primetimepk. We're going to ramp up with a few more things on there. And also the general history podcast I'm on with myself and my wife. Uh, she's the star. I just kind of chime in every now and then. Not uh, that, true. <laughs> Not true at all. She's also at home this week. Uh, or today, at least. Uh, that comes out every Wednesday morning. Uh, you can follow that show on Instagram at We Had No Idea Podcast. Aside from that, talk to you guys later this week. I'm out. <laughs>